you are listening to Maghrebian Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of History of the Maghreb History in the Maghreb Lecture Series and was recorded at the Semat Directors Conference on Narratives of Legitimacy and the Maghreb State, Power, Law and Comparison, held on June 21, 2019 in Sidi Bouzaid, Tunisia. In this podcast, Dr. Ismail Montana Associate Professor of History at Northern Illinois University talks about the Husseini dynasty and spatial control and judicial control of the enslaved blacks of Tunis. In this paper, I am going to examine how the Ottoman conquest of Ephrikia in 1574 and the process of establishment of the Husseini dynasty at the turn of the 18th century were instrumental in acculturating a newly imported class of enslaved West Africans and their religious practice known as Bori into Tunisian society. In his masterly writings on Ottoman rule in Tunisia, the Tunisian historian Mohamed Hadi Sharif theorizes that although the Ottomans imposed a top-down rule, their mode of governance, particularly that of the Husseinid dynasty, led to a greater centralization relative peace and economic prosperity. Following their success in repelling Algerian dice encroachment on Tunis and subsequently the dethronement of their Muradid predecessors, the Husseinid accelerated Tunisia's move towards a de facto autonomy from Istanbul. In so doing, they broadened the base for governance toward a more inclusive and stable society. This mode of centralization marked by formation of strategic alliance between the Husseinid themselves, Kologlis or descendants of the Turkish fatherhood with Tunisian motherhood and indigenous notables supplanted the Khaldunian model of centralization based on the notion of Asabiya. In the process, indigenous Tunisians were recruited into the D1 and the army. To broaden their appeal to the local population, the Husseinid relied on the indigenous religious establishment, including urban Malikite ulama and local marabout authorities, as a source of societal integration and a basis for socio-political leadership. The key contention of this paper is that, from the early 18th century, integration of these newly imported enslaved West Africans into Tunisian society was characterized by the Husseinid centralization tendencies and a socio-religio-political form of domination. In addition to ordaining Sidi Saad al-Abid, a former slave of Borno origin, as a popular Sufi saint and a rallying figure for the enslaved West Africans, the Husseinid promoted judicial administrative apparatus designed toward their assimilation into formal structure of the state religio-political scheme. While this process facilitated acculturation of this group into the state structure of societal control, it by and large fostered their assimilation or disassimilation within 
Tunisian society depends on how this issue is approached. I begin by exploring the historical framework of the enslaved West Africans' presence in Tunisia, the development of the Buri cult religious practice, and then I will look at its acculturation through the contours of the Husseinic religio-political framework of societal integration. So now, let's take a look at the context and the framework of the presence of the enslaved Africans in Husseinic Tunisia. The period between 1724 and 1872 was one of the unstable period in modern history of Tunisia, and this instability unquestionably resulted in a gradual increase, increased presence of the enslaved West Africans in the Regency of Tunis. Beginning in 1705, Hussein ibn Ali allied with the Turkish militia and Tunisian building to lead the province to its quasi-independence. This change in 1705 brought with it series of administrative, political, and socio-economic transformations. The core of all these transformations was a demographic shift that displaced the Muradi days and brought the Kologles to the forefront. The Kologles themselves, not full-fledged Tunisians, and in order to appeal broadly to the local population, they instituted a number of internal reforms designed to foster closer links with the local indigenous population than did the Muradi's days. In his studies of early Husseinid dynasty, Hadi Sharif attributes the success of the early Husseinid chiefly to what he calls non-Asabiya form of centralization. As Sharif rightly notes, the early Husseinid fostered links with the indigenous population by integrating local notables and the local religious institutions into the state apparatus while simultaneously laying the foundation of a strong centralized regime. Early on in 1724, a household conflict erupted between Hussein ibn Ali and his nephew Ali Bey I. This conflict continued until the end of Hussein's rule in 1735 when he was defeated in Kairawan and murdered in 1740 at the hand of Ali Bey's son. The civil war did not end with the death of Hussein, however. Its lingering effects were discernible in the measures that Ali Bey I used to win the support of some tribes after the death of Hussein ibn Ali in 1735. Most historians of pre-colonial Tunisia stress the ramification of this succession crisis as a defining feature of the early Husseinid dynasty. Indeed, with the exception of the reign of Ali Bey I, who was himself overthrown by his former foes, the whole period between 1724 and 1782 is one characterized by disorder and diminishing security. This diminishing security was exacerbated by further disruptions due to increasing encroachment of Turkish days from Algeria after the death of Ali Bey I in 1756. Without a doubt, the succession crisis and the civil war environment laid the foundation for the importation of black military corps from the central Sudan, followed by a sustained increase of slaves from the very same geographical and cultural zone where the slave corps had originated. Indeed, the use of Sudanic slave corps had been practiced for much of Tunisia's past. Ali Bey I tap upon this existing practice and commissioned the import of black slaves directly from the Bilad Sudan. Following the death of Hussein ibn Ali and the defeat of his faction, Ali Bey I became the heir apparent 
to the throne. However, his accession to the throne did not go uncontested. At the beginning of his rule, the Diwan al-Askar, over which Ali Bey now presided, comprised of Janissaries, or full-fledged Turkish generals. Prior to the accession of Ali Bey I, most of these Janissaries, members of the Muradid period, continued to be part of the al Husaynid Baylikal military apparatus and kept strong ties with Turkish days in neighboring Algiers. These ties to Ali Bey's fall did not fit well with the current status quo of the Regency's political changes. Therefore, to counterbalance the Algerian Turkish days attempt to destabilize the new status quo and to rebuff the risk element in the Diwan al-Askar, Ali Bey resorted to a number of military measures. First, he enlisted a foreign unit of troops, the Zuawa, recruited from the Kabili tribe. Then fresh slaves were imported from the Bilad Sudan to serve as the Bey's private bodyguards. Abdul Majid al-Sabai, whose private papers document the context of the importation of the black slave, has the following to say, and I quote, in the year 1738 and 1739, the Prince Ali Bey authorized the recruitment of Horas of Sudan, meaning blacks, in lieu of the Turks and the Arab guards. As for the Arabs, this was due to their lack of trustworthiness, and this Ali Bey's fear of the habit of constant intrigues and plots. As for the Turks, because the prince was well aware of their desire to accumulate all sort of powers into their own hands, because of this, he does distance them as his palace guard. And this is the chief reason why Ali Bey authorized the enrollment of the Sudan, meaning the blacks, as his palace guard and imported a great number of them into Tunis. He also facilitated their settlement and built hostels for them and permitted them to establish their own clubs. Each one of these clubs was called Kofa and only the Sudan assemble in them and conduct their own business." End quote. Well, as noticed in this account, when he imported the black slave corps to serve as his palace guard, Ali Bey I took a special measure to house and integrate them into Tunisian society by allowing them to establish what Asabai described as Nawadi or clubhouses. These clubhouses function as religious and social centers for these regiments. The biggest of these clubhouses, Dar Kofa, provided a space to practice their ancestral religion. While the exact number of the clubhouses from this period remain unknown, they provided a template for the rise and development of later households, particularly after the increased importation of slaves during the reign of Hamoud Abasha from the same geographical region of the Bilad Sudan. And for those of you who knows, who have read a little bit of my first book, which is on abolition of slavery in Ottoman Tunisia, you can see a detailed kind of account about, you know, the increase of the slave trade during the reign of Hamoud Abasha. By the first quarter of the 19th century, the enslaved West Africans in Tunis clustered into these households were differentiated from the rest of Tunisian society because of their practice of the Bori cult. Although many of these enslaved West Africans were acculturated into the Islamic faith, Bori played an important role in defining and maintaining their social and religious boundaries. A description of the Bori cult by a West African traveler by name Ahmed ibn al-Qadi ibn Ibrahim al-Timbuktawi, and later on by a British anthropologist, Amidio Tremian, revealed that since the early 19th century, the Bori cult was extremely popular 
among the West Africans. It was organized around a number of pantheons, as with body structure in northern Nigeria. In the Regency of Tunis, it was modeled in accordance with the hierarchical structure of the surrounding society. In Altimbuktawi's account, for instance, the pantheons of Bodhi spirit included a complex hierarchy of deities. The most important of the Bodhi deities was Sarkinjida, also known in local terms as Sway of the Jinn and the Desert, Sultan al-Jinn or Sahara. Then there was Sarkinwari, which was next to Sarkinjida in ranking and importance, and was considered in relation to Sarkinjida as Kaid in Tunis stood in relation to the Bay of Tunis. Even though Sarkinwari was considered inferior to Sarkinjida, Sarkinwari was the patron of the town. So this is a quick kind of, you know, snapshot just to give you an idea about the Buri and its function. So what I'm going to do is like to go, to, I mean, move to the last part of my paper and talk about how the Husseini kind of uh, integrated uh, the Buri and its practitioners into Tunisian society. So in line with the Husseini socio-religious policy, of societal integration. The enslaved West Africans combined the Bori cult practices with popular Sufism, which the Husseinid strongly uh, encouraged. This form of acculturation was not a spontaneous act. It involved a guided immersion of the West African Bori into the prevailing socio-religious culture in Tunisia. This process was also premised on the framework of the Husseinid policies designed to control the Tunisian populace, especially after the birth of their hegemonic role. For example, scholars who write on the formative period of the Husseinid dynasty delineate the religio-political culture that was instituted by the early Husseinids as one of the foremost characteristics typifying the Regency in its early stage. Hadi Sharif and Jamil Abu Nasser, for instance, show that after they fended off Ottoman Algerian encroachment, the Husseinid transformed the political structure in order to regulate Tunisian society. To gain support from the local populace for this change, the Husseinid gave several incentives to the local religious establishment while simultaneously laying the foundation for the emergence of a new form of religious institutions, the goal of which was to provide a platform for individuals outside existing institutions to express their loyalty to the Husseini. Within this context, according to Hadi Sharif, a black slave saint known as Sidi Saad or Sidi Abi, famous among his enslaved West African followers, was one of a new generation of saints who appeared in the Regency during the early stages of the Husseini religio-political transformation. Sharif considers Sidi Saad as a popular marabout and describes him as an intermediate saint between the locally centered popular Sufi orders such as Sidi Bel Hassan, Ashadili, and Sidi Mahras. Sidi Saad is also considered a bridge to transnational Sufi brotherhood networks such as Qadriya and Tijaniya. His rise to prominence within this religious uh, landscape must be seen in tandem with the early Husseinid endeavors to, con to control the populace of the Regency, argues Sherry, and particularly to integrate into Tunisian society the recently imported enslaved West Africans. 
The majority of this first generation of West African communities brought under the Husseinid was born in West and Central Sudan, thus in West Africa. Another Husseinid era historian, Leon Carl Brown, for instance, distinguished and classified this category of black population in Tunisia as detribalized. That is, compared to the native-born black and older generation of free slaves, the Sudanic West Africans imported under the Husseini were loosely integrated into Tunisian society. Therefore, the ordination of Sidi Saad not only served the purpose of providing spiritual patronage for the West African communities, but the black saint was officially used by the Husseinite as a vehicle for their integration and assimilation into Tunisian society. Following the death of Sidi Saad, his shrine, located in Mornag, about six kilometers north of Tunis, became a Zawiya and a site of veneration mainly by the West Africans who um, continue to this day look upon Sidi Saad as their patron saint. The ordination and induction of Sidi Saad into Sufi sainthood through the Husseinite religio-political culture and his subsequent veneration by the West African communities and their descendants are attested by Al-Wazir Sarraj, a contemporary historian of the early Husseinite dynasty. As Sarraj briefly reported that Sidi Saad was indeed among the local Zawiyas that emerged in Tunis during the reign of Hussein ibn Ali. Apart from As Sarraj's short biographical reference to Sidi Saad tracing his, his appearance apparently to the early Husseinite period, not much has been documented about the life of this black saint. Despite the scarcity of information, the available sources are in agreement that Sidi Saad was not a locally born Tunisian. He was rather said to have been a Kanuri from Borno who came to the Regency along with his master from Istanbul. Oral accounts and tradition held by the descendants of the enslaved blacks of Tunisia hold the same view about the origin of Sidi Saad, but believe that following his settlement in Tunis, he distinguished himself among some unknown Sufi disciples at the time and was therefore proclaimed as a spiritual uh, figure among the Sufi establishment. They call him, they said that he was one of the Arba'in Zakara. Indeed, not only did the black saint serve as a unifying symbol for the West African communities, but their strong attachment to him also led to acculturation of the Bori cult with popular Marabutism. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available in our website www.themagreppodcast.com as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to the Semat newsletter at www.sematmagreb.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.